word of God to be preached and heard and believed. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 1. You can find that on page 448 in those blue Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Psalm 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess that we gather this morning with the burdens and cares of last week on our hearts, and we acknowledge that we need your help during this hour. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would incline our hearts to your testimonies. Give us a delight for your word, an appetite to know you through these sacred writings. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. Help us to see your truth and your glory. Keep us from error. Deliver us from our own sin that blinds us and from those who would lead us astray. And would you satisfy us with your love? Help us to know that you are more worthy of our worship than anything this world can offer. We want to taste and see that you are good. So we need your help. We are a needy people. We ask for the Holy Spirit, to be our instructor, that he would guide us into the truth and deliver us from the evil one. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name and with confidence that you will do it for our good and the glory of your great name. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Are there any qualities or characteristics that are true of Christians only and make them different from the rest of mankind? Or are we just like the rest, each of one embracing our respective club of belonging? What distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian? Or to ask the question more pointedly, what would bring you the greatest happiness and delight? What would bring you the greatest misery and pain? Blessedness and accursedness are the Bible's way of discussing happiness and woe. What calculation do you make about where and how to find blessing? Your calculation reveals what you live for. Your delight determines your destiny. 
And here's the big idea I want us to believe this morning. There are only two ways to live. God's way and man's way. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. If you choose the wicked way, you will find death and judgment. But if you follow God's way, you will find joy and life. And my prayer is that you will find God's way compellingly beautiful and follow it forever. But how would the psalmist teach us to live? What does it mean to follow God's way? That's what I want us to see this morning. So if you're not there already, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. And I want us to meditate on three distinctions of the righteous from the wicked. And if you pursue these three distinctions, the Lord will bless you and prosper your way for his glory. First, we'll consider a distinct delight. And then a distinct durability. And finally, a distinct destiny. So first, a distinct delight. Look at verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalms 1 and 2 function as a gateway to the rest of the Psalter. They don't have superscriptions, those little words that come before the first verse that tell you about the author, the occasion, or the tune of the song. But in Acts 4, verse 25, Luke quotes the early Christians as citing Psalm 2 from King David. And so David wrote Psalm 2 and probably Psalm 1, since they are intimately connected. The beginning of Psalm 1 and the ending of Psalm 2 focus on those who are blessed, binding these psalms together. And together they're presenting an ideal picture of a Messiah who loves the Bible who reigns in justice and righteousness, and all who take refuge in him are blessed with him. And there's a picture of the wicked, who will be driven away like chaff, because the wrath of the sun is kindled against them. So there's the blessed man and those associated with him, and then there's the wicked, those who plot against the Lord and against his anointed. There are those who love the law and the Lord's Redeemer. And there are those who reject both. And so these two psalms lay the worldview for the entire Psalter. Now this word blessed in Psalm 1, verse 1, in the Greek Old Testament is the same word that's used in the Greek New Testament for the blessed of the Beatitudes, which we heard earlier. These are Jesus' pronouncements of blessedness. Now our idea of blessedness today is often, you know, Instagram pictures of people on the beach or in front of their new dream home. You know, with hashtag blessed, right? You've seen these? But blessed means happy in the rich, full sense of happiness. It means you're not under God's curse. You enjoy favor with God in this life and hope of one day enjoying the fullness of God. You enjoy freedom from sin's power now and the hope of being finally free from sin's presence. That's the Bible's view of the blessed man. But now who is this happy person? We're told that the happy person rejects the wicked way. He rejects their shameful counsel. The advice of the wicked disgusts him. 
He rejects their sinful conduct. The acts of the wicked distress him. He rejects their scoffing company. The allegiance of the wicked dismays him. Well, where then does his happiness lie? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The law of the Lord delights him. This is not a scribe who pulls all-nighters studying Levitical case law. The word for law is Torah. The general meaning of Torah is instruction. In other words, law covers the whole range of God's instruction, right? Not just the legal ordinances. He loves all of Scripture. Instead of finding his pleasures in the words or the ways of the wicked, this blessed man finds his pleasures in the words and the ways of God. And two reasons. Because of its authoritative source, right? It's the law of the Lord. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. The Lord says in Isaiah 66 verse 2, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. Spurgeon said, to me, the Bible is not God, but it is God's voice. I do not hear it without awe. There's no surer source for truth than the Bible. Brothers and sisters, build your life on the infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word of God. He loves the the word because of its authoritative source. But he also loves it because of its arresting sweetness. His delight is in it, and he meditates on it day and night. He savors because of what he sees. It captures his attention. He finds scripture so gripping that he cannot turn his thoughts off on it. He is riveted by God's revelation. Consider what the Bible says about itself. It is able to give us wisdom for salvation. Keep us from sin. Equip us for every good work. It is able to give us life and faith. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is a shining lamp to light the way. It convicts of sin, comforts in sorrow, and guides to life everlasting. Indeed, it is the very oracles of the living God. And so the Bible is not meaningless words to you, but they are your life. Indeed, man lives through every word that comes from the mouth of God. It commands us to seek its truths like silver. Set our hearts to study it. Think over what it says. Renew our minds by it. Obey its precepts and proclaim its truth to others. And so when you experience the word like that, it's so delightful and so satisfying that it captures your mind and your heart day and night and weans you away from the counsel and the path and the seat of the world. When you experience the word like that, you are blessed. You are happy. Three observations or applications I want to set before you. Your habits affect your heart. They just do. Notice the progression in verse 1, right? Walk, stand, sit. Over time, a loose association becomes a loyal allegiance. But observe the blessed man's habit. He meditates on the law day and night. This isn't merely referring to quiet times in the morning and evening. Right? This is an all-day, all-of-life mindfulness of God 
and his word. David Pallison wrote, We often relegate, relegate Scripture to something to be studied every morning, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and then put back on the shelf. It's so much more. God's words are to be a part of our lives if we want to be blessed, as Psalm 1 says. But I do think we need to solidify those start and end times of our days with godly habits. When you wake up, what's the first thing you grab? Your phone or your Bible? When you settle down at night, do you binge Netflix or meditate on the scriptures? I'm not saying that you can't own a phone or watch TV. But I am saying that God's word needs to be our go-to. Because if we delight in it, then we will dwell on it. Another observation. Your counsel reveals your convictions. The wicked give wicked counsel. They say things like, follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Live your best life now. The righteous give biblical counsel. They reject worldly wisdom. And they rely on the sufficiency of God's word to meet every spiritual need. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Scoffers cast doubt on God's word. The first scoffer showed up in the Garden of Eden, saying, Did God actually say? And ever since that fall into sin, cynicism is the air that we breathe. We are told, how can you believe such an ancient book? Get with the times, man. And yet the righteous take God at his word. We are people who believe the Bible because every word of God proves true. Brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity to be distinct. Let us have the courage of our convictions. Let us be people full of happy confidence in the Lord and in his word. Third observation. Your holiness fuels your happiness. The one who enjoys the Lord's blessing is the one who strives to avoid sin at all costs. Sin and joy cannot exist at the same time and in the same heart. The two are mutually exclusive. Satan's great lie is that holiness and obedience will keep us from happiness. But the happy person rejects the wicked way because he knows it won't lead to true and lasting joy. Sin promises happiness, but it never delivers it. The counsel, conduct, and company of the wicked are roadblocks to happiness. They're detours leading to death. J.C. Ryle said the true Christian hates sin, flees from it, fights against it, considers it his greatest plague, resents the burden of its presence, mourns when he falls under its influence, and longs to be completely delivered from it. And so he chooses a more delightful way. Blessedness comes as we meditate on God's law. Now meditation, of course, is not some sort of Eastern religion where you sit cross-legged with your feet up on your thighs in the lotus position. And thank God, because otherwise I would never take any delight in it. This Hebrew word for meditate means to mutter, to chew on the text, to recite it under your breath. And the idea is one of constant pondering of God's law during the entire day. From sunup to sundown, you think about his statutes. 
You consider how to live them out. You apply them to your heart. Meditation is not emptying your mind, but filling your mind with God and His Word and His truth. It's not passivity, but a constructive mental activity and spiritual activity. And that kind of meditation cannot help but produce the fruit of obedience in our lives. So brothers and sisters, meditate on God's Word. Know it like Timothy. right? He was acquainted with the sacred writings from his childhood. Study it like Ezra. He set his heart to study and to do and to teach it. Memorize it like the psalmist who said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Sing with that psalmist. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Be soaked in the scriptures. You will not regret less time surfing the internet or watching TV on the last day. Resolve to be like John Bunyan of whom it was said, Why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, and his blood is biblene. The very essence of the Bible flows through him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the word of God. Get the Bible into your bloodstream. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the scoffers shun the sacred text. We must have it, or we die. J.I. Packer wrote, Do not all children of God long with the psalmist to know just as much about our Heavenly Father as we can learn. Is not indeed the fact that we have received a love for His truth in this way one proof that we shall have been born again. The first distinction of a Christian from a non-Christian is not more doctrine in the head or deeds of the hands or decisions of the will, but delight in the heart for the Lord and for his word. Second, consider a distinct durability. Verse 3 and 4. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. We have here some imagery, which is a picture made out of words. It's based on a comparison. You take two things that are different, you bring them together, and you compare them so that one thing takes on a quality from what you are comparing it with. And here we have two similes, right? Like a tree, like chaff. The righteous are like a fruitful tree. The wicked are like frail chaff. So let's consider each in turn. First, the blessed righteous man. He has a distinct durability, like a fruitful tree. And each phrase here clarifies why he's durable. Planted by streams of water. This is the winning combination for an arborist. Yet solid roots and a sustained supply. He won't fall over or dry up, but is full of life and vitality. He does not fear the drought because he's planted by an external stream. If we want a well-watered faith that will last through dry seasons of life, we need God's word in our hearts. Notice that planted is a passive verb. We cannot transplant ourselves from the wilderness of sin into the garden of salvation. God must do it. He must save us and he must sustain us by his word. Yields its fruit in its season. The Lord Jesus said, you shall recognize 
the righteous from the wicked by their fruit. In Galatians 5, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Right? The righteous are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. No matter the season, whether a season of suffering or serenity, the righteous bear fruit for God. There is no off-season for the believer. But a tree does not grow unto itself. Right? Trees beget trees. And so those who love the Lord will grow strong in him. And that growth will produce fruit. And that fruit will produce seed that grows into saplings who will eventually become enduring arbors in their own right. The righteous have a multi-generational durability of faithfulness and fruitfulness. Notice that we are fruit bearers, not fruit pickers. We do not bear fruit by striving to keep the works of the law. We bear fruit by hearing God's word in faith. Do you remember what Paul asked the Galatians? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The Christian life is not, I get in Christ through the gospel and I stay in Christ through the law. No. Growth in Christ happens as we hear and believe and apply the grace of the gospel and the word of God. Legalism chokes growth, but the, the gospel fuels it. The spirit of God takes the word of God and changes the children of God by faith to become more like the son of God. And Jesus is the root and we bear the fruit. Its leaf does not wither. This tree is not going to die out or burn out. A believer's persevering attachment to Christ and his word is what distinguishes him from false professors. Jesus said in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. You see, leaves wither if it's too hot or there's not enough water. And then without the nourishing effects of God's word, we too would quickly become dry and withered branches. But by abiding in Jesus and abiding in his word, we bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. And so church, stay rooted in the good soil of God's word. Do you remember Jesus' parable about the four types of soil that the seed of God's word falls on? Three of them prove unfruitful. They may show initial signs of life, but in the end they lack durability and they don't last. When the time comes to take a stand for Christ, pay a price to be a Christian, they don't pass the test. Their faith proves superficial. Only one soil bears fruit in supernatural abundance, right? 30, 60, and 100 full. Those are the hearts that continually receive God's word in faith and meditate on it day and night. As James says, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
Ultimately, we persevere because God perseveres with us and preserves us. As Jude says, God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Our eternal joy in God is secured by God because we are kept by God. And God keeps his promise that whoever believes in his only begotten son will not perish, but have eternal life. In all that he does, he prospers. The righteous man has the smile of God upon him. You know, perhaps the psalmist wanted us to think of Joseph, of whom the scriptures say, the Lord made everything that he did successful. The prayer of Psalm 90, establish the work of our hands, proves true for the righteous. Where else in the Bible do we see the promise of prospering connected to meditating on the scripture? Joshua 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. David is intentionally alluding to the way Joshua was exhorted to meditate on the law. David is saying, we Davidic kings are playing a role similar to Joshua. We're aiming at conquering the land like Joshua did. We want to follow in the footsteps of Moses and Joshua. And so what was promised in Psalm 1 was first guaranteed in Joshua 1. Obedience to the Torah, to God's word, will cause people to prosper. Now question, is this success and prosperity teaching a health and wealth gospel? Absolutely not. Prosperity does not mean material or financial success but success in the work of the Lord. The prosperity and success we're after is godliness and the knowledge of the living God. If you want to see a renewal of the conditions of Eden, meditate on the scriptures day and night. You'll be like that tree. There's an old hymn I love that captures this psalm so well. The hymn says, When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And so the blessing, the happiness referred to in verse 1 is a life that is nourishing and fruitful for others. A life that is deeply durable in the face of drought. And a life whose labor is not in vain but succeeds in God's good purposes unto eternity. Now contrast that with verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. They walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the pathway with sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. Their delight is not in the law of the Lord, but they heap scorn on anyone who follows it. They do not meditate on God's word day and night, but suppress it, reject it, ignore it, distort it. They are not like a well-watered tree bringing forth seasonable fruit. And whatsoever they do shall end, in the end work their shame and overthrow. A sad and utter defeat of all their plans awaits the ungodly. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, 
and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The wicked lack durability. They are like chaff, dried up, useless husks husks of grain that blow away in the winnowing process. They are influenced by every wind of false doctrine that blows their way. And they stand in sharp contrast to that firmly rooted tree that is the righteous. So we've seen a distinct delight, a distinct durability, and now consider a distinct destiny. Verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is where the two ways lead. Two alternatives of ultimate seriousness. You can either be among the righteous or you can be among the wicked. These are the only two categories of human beings. And everybody belongs to one or the other. And along with these two alternative kinds of persons, the psalmist warns of two alternative destinies in this life and at the judgment. If you are wicked, your way will perish. If you are righteous, your way will be known and attended and protected by God even unto glory. For the wicked, chaff-like and ending in destruction. For the righteous, tree-like and ending in the glorious congregation of the righteous. Nothing less than eternal joy in heaven or eternal punishment in hell are at stake. These are the only two ways to live. Jesus taught these two ways. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Here's how article 18 of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith puts it. On the righteous and the wicked. We believe that there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked. That such only as through faith are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of our God are truly righteous in His esteem. While all such as continue in impenitence and unbelief are in His sight wicked and under the curse. And this distinction holds among men both in and after death. Now, you may be asking, okay, I get it. The righteous have a distinct delight, a distinct durability, and a distinct destiny. But don't the Psalms later say, there is none righteous. No, not even one. So how do I become one of the righteous? It seems impossible. And the answer is there in that confession And more importantly, it's in our Bibles. But did you catch it? Only those who are justified through faith in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of our God are truly righteous in his esteem. The righteous are declared righteous and then they are made righteous by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1. He's the Psalm 1 prototype. You see, the man who is truly blessed is the man who does not walk in the ways of the wicked even once. 
Certainly this psalm depicts an ideal, for we will not be sinless on this side of glory. But consider Jesus. He had a distinct delight. When Jesus came into the world, he said, I have come to do your will. He loved the law of the Lord. He perfectly obeyed the law. He lived as a man acquiring wisdom. He ate and drank with sinners and never once desired to join them in their sin. He had a distinct durability. Astonished crowds said of him, he has done all things well. In his darkest season of suffering, he did not wither at all, but prayed to his father, not my will, but your will be done. His ministry bears fruit even today. Every Sunday, his people gather to worship him and proclaim his grace. He is by no means a forgotten celebrity of ancient times, but remains the most important human to ever live. He had a distinct destiny. Through his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation as Lord of all, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. On the last day, Jesus will separate the righteous from the wicked and assign each person to their eternal destiny. Those who scoffed at his will and walked in their own way will perish in that way, and his wrath will be quickly kindled against them. He will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But all those who entered through the narrow way, who kissed the Son and took refuge in him, trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of eternal life and right standing with God, they will have that inheritance that awaits the congregation of the righteous. They will enter into the joy of their master and be known, loved, and blessed forevermore. So brothers and sisters, friends, the way of happiness and the way of salvation are one and the same. The person who wants things his own way and refuses to serve Christ will never be truly happy. But the one who serves Christ has the promise of both lives. They are happy on earth and will be happier still in heaven. There are only two ways to live. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Choose the wicked way and you will find death and judgment. Follow God's way and you will find joy and life. And my prayer is that by God's grace, you will find God's way. The Lord Jesus himself, compellingly beautiful. And follow him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, which so clearly teaches us the way to live. And so we ask now that we would turn from the wicked way and delight in your word and in your son. Would you cause us to bear fruit for your glory, for our joy? Would you keep us durably attached to Christ and his precious gospel and his redeemed people? And Lord, if there is anyone here today that is on the path to destruction, I pray that you would mercifully knock them off that path and reroute them to glory. Show them the more excellent way that is the Lord Jesus. Draw them to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.